Like this is one of those shows <laughs> that I would have loved to be able to use uh, that flavor in your ear remix. <laughs> like that would have been perfect. And then I was very tempted to just like maybe sample a little bit of it. But yeah. you know, all it takes is just dip, and then they just pull the whole thing down. But just know as the intro music is playing in my head. Yeah. It's it's Craig Mack flavor in your remix. Same. Evening, everyone. I am your host, Jason Miles, and welcome to another episode of This Is Revolution Podcast. Thank you all for joining us this evening. Before we start, if you're new to the channel, please hit subscribe. Don't forget to hit that notification bell so you're alerted whenever we go live, since we're constantly adding new shows and doing cross streams with other channels constantly. That said, if you enjoy what we do here at TIR, and don't want to make the yearly or monthly commitment, show your support with revolutionary merch. <laughs> MT, can you bring the merch up on the screen real quick? Sure thing, Mr. J. <laughs> <laughs> we were supposed to work out your merch pitch. Oh. Yeah, I was not merch pitching uh, this weekend. You weren't, but today is a new day. It's a new week. Do you have the merch pitch ready? Um, let me see if <laughs> I can pull it up. It has to be your own special New York flair. Like you're selling that... bootleg Nikes at the barbershop. Oh, oh man. Um, that said, if you enjoy <laughs> what we do here, this is revolution, son. <laughs> and you and you don't want to make the yearly or monthly commitment. Show your there should be a comma there. Show your support with Thank revolutionary you. merch. MT, can you bring this up on screen real quick? Sure, I can. Home. You totally weren't supposed to read the the director's direction. <laughs> That's the best part. 
<laughs> Did I actually write that in? Yes. I'm so hurt. That's your. That's how you sell bootleg Nikes at the bodega. Oh, I would never sell at a bodega. No, it's got to be like a, a barber shop or a hairdresser spot. Unisex is best. Unisex is best. Fuck yeah. left. That's unisex is best. Unisex is best. <laughs> But see, look at all the shiny merch, man. You can get a cool coffee cup. Uh, you can you can get get one with Pascal's face on it. Smiling. A rarity. Smiling Pascal is a rarity. Thank you to not. all patrons <laughs> and YouTube and Twitch subscribers. You guys are the oh-so-important cogs in the TIR machine. If you'd like to be a part of what we do here, have access to the call-in segment of the show that is so much damn fun, and also be a part of Movie Night, which we'll be doing this Friday. We're going to do Movie Night this Friday. And you guys are voting on that movie. Are we going to watch um, Willie Dynamite or... Life is hot in Cracktown. <laughs> Don't laugh. That's a real movie. Uh, okay. I'm sure that movie's about nothing but the truth because the title sounds true. <laughs> I I spent I spent twenty minutes reading reviews on Life is Hot in Cracktown. Unreal. And I think Life is Hot in Cracktown would be a perfect fun movie night movie to watch but um people are voting the last i saw the vote uh willie dynamite was winning mm -hmm. one person thought um that life is hot in cracktown was a title i made up sounds like it i'm not that look you'd be surprised how many people love to crack first of all and second of all i'm not that witty to make up a title like Life is Hot in Crackdown. Oh my God. And it's starring this one actor. I think he's Puerto Rican, but he looks just like Teray. <laughs> Teray looks Puerto Rican. Teray does look. <laughs> he does look Puerto Rican. <laughs> I hope this is not the episode that he's watched tonight. Probably. My phone starts. Puerto that... yeah. Rican, huh? I look like what? John Cersei. Can you bring that up on the screen? John Cersei says, I'd go with crack. Damn. You'd be surprised how many people love the crack. Already. Already. Well, look, let's bring in my co-host, my homie, my dog. He is the man of the Mau Mau Hour. He is the Pascal Robert. Go Willie Dynamite, man. Willie Dynamite got to have vision, man. <laughs> I wonder. I want to know if our guest as as uh, I think he's a little younger than us, so I don't think he's seen a lot of these uh, black exploitation movies from the early seventies. But Willie Dynamite is the most fictitious pimp scene I've ever seen. <laughs> There is no human in the world that talks like this. <laughs> Maybe Young Thug. <laughs> you think Young Thug would come A little to bit. He's, as the kids say, zesty. 
Zesty? Zesty. Is that what Willie Dynamite is? Is Willie Dynamite Zesty? I guess he is, right? That's not Willie Dynamite. What's the what's that pimp's name, Pascal? Do you remember what that pimp's name oh, was? Oh um, I forget, man, but his nails are perfectly manicured. Oh man. <laughs> Very vampire-esque. Like not even like the coke nail. He had all the nails. Like he just digs his hand in between like this. So uh, what about Huffy Bear? Huffy Bear? You mean you mean uh, I think he means Huggy Bear. Huggy Bear. Okay. It's Huggy Bear. Huffy Huggy Bear, Bear was, was the ghetto character from Starsky and Hutch. Wasn't Huggy yes. Bear the character from Starsky and Hutch? Huggy Bear, yes, was the character from Starsky, but Huffy Bear is a pimpy care bear. Okay. <laughs> Huffy bears. Well, look, enough of this quote-unquote tomfoolery. <laughs> Oftentimes, leftist podcasts have academics and intellectuals speaking about the working class, but rarely do we get the working class on a show speaking about organizing. Our guest this evening, Richard Hooker, is the secretary, treasurer, and principal officer of Teamsters Local 623 for Building Shift at PHL Airport, UPS, and Greyhound. For over 100 years, Teamsters Local 623 has represented warehouse workers, UPS package car drivers, Greyhound ticket and baggage agents, among others, in the fight for a dignified life of all working people. MT, would you like to bring in our guest? Please welcome. Mr. Richard Hooker. Welcome, Mr. Hooker. How are you tonight? I'm good. How about yourself? I'm okay. I do have uh, one question for you about the title. Don't be All mad. Right. UPS is hiring. How do you right. feel about that? Hey, I, it's, it's a good title, man. UPS, come on out. You know, get you a, a, a union good paying job, great benefits. You're protected by the greatest union in the world, the Teamsters. So come on out and get, get you a job at UPS. You guys are hiring now for the holidays, aren't you? Yes. Yes, they are. All right. All right. He said it. I well, didn't. He said it. <laughs> no, I didn't. <laughs> You're hiring. Well, I mean, that that line, I think we were talking about that line um, earlier today, which or yesterday, and I was trying to wrap my head around that line and actually make an intro for the show kind of revolved around that line. And it was kind of hard for me to do because I kept falling down almost underclass ideology thinking because there's a lot of that in that song. Right. Um, And also in a lot of that's a line from Biggie. Um, the late notorious B.I.G. And it was actually a very popular line. That was like the punchline mm-hmm. of that song. You know, Biggie had two kind of defining punchlines to me. That and you played out like Kwame and then polka dots. Like Poor totally Kwame. ruined Kwame's wardrobe for the rest of his life. Mm-hmm. But um, <laughs> it did kind of sound like you can't rap, ergo work this plebe job and mt and i were talking about how it almost looks down upon kind of a dignified line of work how do you guys feel about that on the screen is that too much for the first question 
<laughs> no, nah, no. Nah. Listen, I mean, I think all work has dignity, no matter what it is. You could be a uh, UPS worker, McDonald's worker. If you if you have a job and you're taking care of your responsibilities, then there's nothing to be ashamed of. And I know what Biggie was saying, uh, especially for you know his lifestyle and you know what he was doing and rapping. But if you have a job, then you have dignity. You should have respect, and that and that's how I feel about it. Did you want to no, say I, something else? Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting that you have this kind of juxtaposition of a guy who was engaged in criminal activity as a drug dealer who makes it as a rapper, looking mm-hmm. down at someone who has a union job working down at, working at UPS, when the quality of life of union jobs is one of the things that actually keeps working class black people in America afloat in this country. And it's the threat to unionized labor that is one of the things that puts so many black people in threat in this country as well. And one of the reasons why I'm so happy to have uh, Brother Hooker on this show today is that I'd like them to speak to the experience and the value of unionized labor as a working class brother in the area that he's in and where he lives and how it distinguishes him from the precarity or the threat of insecurity that comes from having non-unionized labor threaten him all around in a country that does not value unionized labor. Yeah, so like you just said, I mean, especially as an African-American, you know, uh, if you can do a lot more um, with a union job, no matter no matter what color you are, because mm-hmm. a, a union job it, it sets the standard for whatever, you know, wherever you are at. So, and right now, UPS, you know, they have a lot of non-union competition. The biggest, of course, is Amazon. Then you have FedEx and, you know, places like that. Mm-hmm. But if you are a minority worker and you have the protection of a union job, if you look at it, um, especially in our community, you know, wages are equal benefits are equal, you know, those things give equity in our community. If you go to a non-union job, you're not going to have that the equity and all those things that come with a union contract, right? So I think, and you, and you can see with Martin Luther King and how that struggle was back then in his time, that he actually, if you, if you remember, <clears throat> the day prior to him getting assassinated, he was speaking about the Memphis strike um, mm-hmm. because he tried to bring dignity and and all those to those workers down there. Garbage so, collectors. say again. The garbage collectors in Memphis. Right, right, yeah. right. So, you know, just 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 look at how even back then, up until now, the importance of of union labor in our community. You know, it's very very important because it gives it gives us some sense of equity with everybody else, with the larger community, our white brothers and sisters. You know, everybody else. You know, you know, the same thing that they get on their check, I get on my check. And it's all because of that contract, that union contract. So it's very important to our community that uh, that we have these union jobs. Well, let's let's kind of expand on that a little bit. Uh, I watched an interview you did about a year or so ago uh, on Jacobin where you did mention the struggle for, you know, union rights, workers rights, if you will, is also the same struggle that we had for for civil rights. And to your point, to both of your points about Martin Luther King and that uh, that struggle with the sanitation workers, if people remember, a big reason why 
um, Martin Luther King and the and his movement picked up that strike was because people were literally dying, getting crushed in the back of garbage trucks because they weren't allowed to like seek shelter um, under certain houses and stuff like that when it was raining. Um, and that's when you get the whole "I am a man" signs. If you guys remember those, that's that's literally where that comes from. That uh, that labor struggle, which is also part of a civil rights struggle. Um, can you kind of elaborate on that that uh, that thought that labor rights and civil rights are are one and the same? Absolutely. So when, when you talk about dignity and you talk about respect, especially in our community, um, a good paying job most and oftentimes gives you the ability to do you know, a lot of things for your community, your family as well, right? So in the black community, one of the things, we are already behind the eight ball, right? So the fight for racial justice and workers' justice are intertwined. That's why you see people like Martin Luther King and all those guys fight for that because they saw that as a way that both can move in the same direction at the same time, right? Because it's all about equality. If I have equality on my workplace, then nine times out of ten, hopefully you will have it also um, in, 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 you know, in your community which we live in. So the union, it, it bridges the gap for race and, and job or workforce, right? So if, again, like I spoke to, uh, you know, just a little, a little bit ago, that contract, that union contract, it's, it, it, it sets the standard for all workers, whether you're black, white, Latino, whatever your sexual orientation is, everybody's equal, right? So that in itself, along with the whole racist, you know, race, you know, what we're going through right now with race, and then what we're going through with the work, it kind of puts everything in perspective because if I'm equal at work, then it should spill over to being equal um, within the, the racial class. But unfortunately, as we see, that's not the case. But I think if, if, if we have more and more minorities and, and more and more um, people of color, women, of course, if they get involved in the union, then you'll kind of see everything continue to move up at the same speed and the same rate and moving in the same direction, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Pascal, do you want to add to that? Uh, I'll actually, okay, I wanted to pivot to another question if you don't want sure. to. Yeah. Richard, I want to ask you a question. One of the things that we talk about on this show is how black politics in America is a class politics. And it's, when we mean the class politics, it's a class politics that mainly revolves around university pedigreed, middle class, black, so petite bourgeois, professional managerial class, <laughs> black people. And one of the consequences of that is that we have a black political class that negotiates the kind of politics that is more interested in protecting their interests and getting what we call pejoratively fat back and biscuits or patronage from the system, as opposed to negotiating for the working class needs of the majority of black people. Do you feel that there's a lack of a working class politics 
in black politics? Do you feel that the part of the problem is that the issues of the black working class are ignored? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, listen, um, I think that I can ask, how can I say this? Well, number one, I want to say you're right, right? Um, when our black leaders, when they get into these positions of power, um, especially in the political realm, they oftentimes forget about where they come from, right? And so they forget they used to have these jobs and they forget how it used to be living in our community and whatnot, right? And so that's why when I got this position, I always try to have a, a relationship with all of my workers, because all of my members, because uh, I remember what it used to, 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 to be like to load a package car or to um, be in the warehouse or to do all those things that um, allowed me to take care of my family. So I think a lot of times, like you just said, um, they had, what you say, the fat back and biscuits type of people <laughs> where, well, you know, they forgot. They forgot all about that. See, I grew up in the South, so I know all about fat back and biscuits. I'm from <laughs> a little small town in, in uh, North Carolina called Bell Haven, where my grandmother used to, they used to cook this fat back and biscuits, right? But you know how they made those fat back and those biscuits? They made them by going to work every day. Hardworking people. My grandmother and both of my grandmothers used to work together in this um, crab, they used to call it the crab house. They used to pick crabs because we used to live, like I said, in Bell Haven. You can look it up. Little small town right, right off the coast of North Carolina. So, and I like that. A fat, I'm gonna have to use that too. So don't don't <laughs> copyright it. Don't copyright it because I'm gonna use it. Don't, I'm gonna use it. I like that. But that's the kind of politicians, black politicians that we need. You know, they they need to remember where they come from, from the fat back and the biscuits. Don't don't get don't get too and indulge with the steak and the lobster that they're getting now. Remember that fat back and biscuits. He's flipping, He's flipping the fat back and biscuits. Right. I mean, I, I love that because, again, I identify with that. And that's another thing. They forgot who they identify with. Well, right. Well, okay. Well, let me ask you this. Is it is it a forgetting where you come from as much as it could be aspirational to get to a certain point? I, I had to watch. I was a guest on a show recently, and I had to watch this horrible movie from the 90s that i hope you guys don't remember called bullworth oh yeah Halle Berry. and it's about this white politician that uh is sleep deprived and starts to realize the error of his political ways because he meets some black people but anyway a lot of it's steeped in underclass ideology but um offensively so but there's a scene where Warren Beatty's character is talking to Halle Berry and he's like, where are all the good black leaders? Where did they go? And he's thinking about Martin Luther King and, and Malcolm X. And I think kind of, you know, getting to that point of, of, of fat back and biscuits politics where representative, representative democracy, you know, kind of has these almost drawbacks when you think about the fact that, uh, Jim Clyburn represents the black vote or, or, you know, insert black politician here, Cory Booker in Jersey. You know, does that really what the quote unquote black vote is? Can the black vote or black voices be diverse 
can people be aspirational? And aspirations aren't always a positive thing. Mm-hmm. They might have, these people that get into power might have aspirations to get to a certain rung in a ladder financially and power-wise where they do become kind of a cog in capital's machine to constantly suppress um, working class black voices. I come from the working class, ergo, I know what these Negroes think. You tell me what to say. I will then tell this to the Negroes and they will follow suit. And that's where I think I get scared of that idea of politician that Obama-esque, the feel your pain language. I'm going to speak the language of these people, right? These people. And, uh, but do the bidding, um, of capital. So where I agree with you that I think a lot of people do forget where they come from politically, I guess where I lose hope in a lot of people that get certain, certain positions of power is, um, was your goal to get there aspirational, um, IE and AOC, uh, and how, how real were your working class politics to to begin with or your working class upbringing, quote unquote, because, you know, sometimes it's, it's also easy to project narratives onto us like Obama had a single mama. <laughs> I had a single mom and it was real different people. You know, <laughs> I didn't go to the most expensive schools and my stepdad. I didn't even have a step, but, you know, to assume that because he's black, we can uh, we can we can put these these kind of quote unquote working class narratives on a lot of these politicians is 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 frightening. And I don't know if sometimes they can just uh, remember where they came from, if you will. I'll take my answer off here. <laughs> well, I can speak from from. From my from my experience, so when we ran for office, um, we ran for office because we wanted to make a difference in the working class in our local union, local six twenty three. Um, I I didn't want to run for office because I knew how difficult it was going to be being a black man in a in a local that has never ever had a black principal officer. I was the first. And so I didn't want that pressure, but I also knew that something had to change. And uh, so we ran for office and we, we ended up winning because we, we ran the first time in 2016 and we lost in um, 2016 by 37 votes. And so what we did was, you know, we continued to put pressure on the establishment, you know, we, we wanted a good contract. We changed our bylaws to be more transparent because we wanted to show um, our local, which is predominantly black. I'm mm-hmm. talking about 70 percent of our local mm-hmm. of about forty six hundred members. Seventy percent of those members look like all of us that's on this channel <laughs> right now. Mm-hmm. But for the last 100 years. You've never seen one of us to lead the local. And, 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 and a lot of that is because, you know, fear and a lot of it, we don't know how to work together. One of us made it, you make it, we want to tear them down. And, 
we feel like we need validation from our white brothers or white sisters, you know what I mean? And so I even, and I'm guilty of that. So I had to really, really overcome that because I knew that I was going to be under a microscope every little thing I did. I even went to our headquarters and was told some things, well, hey, Hooker, they watch it A, they watch B, they watch C. And I have some examples of how other leaders and other locals of, of you know, people of color who lost their jobs because, you know, they got careless or they thought they were buddy-buddy with certain people, mm-hmm. but that's not the case. So when we got elected, we made sure that we wouldn't forget where we come from. We're in our buildings every day. We mm-hmm. talk to our members every day um, because we want them to know that they can still identify with us and we still identify with them because we know how it feels to load a truck. We know how it feels to drive a truck. We know how it feels to sort like you was talking about earlier. We know all those things and we still all those things just because we have these positions don't mean we are any different um, than our members. And I tell my members all the time, I'm still a rank and file person. I just happen to be the principal officer. So when I, when I, I attack a certain thing or when I talk about an issue, I don't talk about it from a perspective of principal officer mm-hmm. or secretary treasurer. I'll talk about it from the person who still is loading on the on 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 the PHL preload mm-hmm. on a package car. I still talk and, and attack the position of when I worked on the midnight shift, getting up at three in the morning. That's what I attack every position, every everything that comes across my desk. I look at it from a person who is still in the warehouse and not from a position of, of, of an official. Mm-hmm. Pascal, do you want to ask? Oh, I'm sorry, Tucson, did you want to add something? Just, I find that so interesting. I, I have worked in shipping and um, basically what you're saying is that the person that I'm handing a bunch of packages to could be a principal officer in their union. No, 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 no. Okay. No, what I'm saying is, I like we just talked about, I haven't forgotten where I come from. Even mm-hmm. though I am the business manager, I still look at every situation as that person who you just talked about okay. who's still loading the packages. Because I mm-hmm. never want to get too big to, 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 to where my members can identify with me because that's a lot of issues that we have in our, in our union is that our members can no longer tell between company management and the union leadership. And mm-hmm. that's, we have to change that. So you started working at UPS, you got into the union and you worked your way up? Yes. So I started back in at UPS in 1999. Um, we, we ran for office in 2019, we were uh, elected. And uh, I ran for the position of uh, secretary treasurer, uh, business manager, and principal officer, all wrapped up into one. Um, and we won, and we actually just uh, ran our re-election November the 9th. We won that re-election by almost 70%. So we, nice. we still, we're, we're still grinding. We're still pushing the, the pedal to the metal, you know what I mean? All right. Pascal? Brother Hook, I really appreciate your perspective coming from the fact that you were on the ground employee that moved himself up into the political echelons of the union. But one of the distinct distinctions I would make is in electoral politics in the political sphere, but we're talking about political offices like Congress and municipal areas like the legislature, 
there's a lot of financial pressure from external forces, lobbyist groups, financial interests that put a lot of pressure on elected officials and politicians to unfortunately have to compromise their principles in ways that take them away from that vision where they are still concerned about the issues of the working class. And I'm not saying that it's impossible to maintain that adherence to to what's going on with people in the grassroots. But one of the problems that we've had, particularly in the last 50 years, particularly in terms of black politics, is that it's been easier for the status quo forces to co-opt our politicians than to get them to actually maintain their allegiance to the grassroots. Why do you think that is? Because they they forgotten. I don't want to say they forgot where they come from. We talked about that, but at a certain point, you got to make a stand. Are you going to be for the lobbyist, or are you going to be for the people that put you there? Right, and you have to you have to do some soul searching. Now I get the whole pressure, the money, the this and that. But if you do what you're supposed to do by the people that put you there. You you will always be there, and I and I and I get it. And I know from my from where I'm at, you know, I, I got a lot of pressure from um, from this this international election that we just had. But I'm, I'm my members put me here, right? It's the members who I serve, and I think that's what these other the, the people in Congress, state houses, the mayors, city council members they have to remember who put them there. Um, and I get it. You need money, you need this, and you need that. But at a certain point, you gotta you gotta make a decision what's important to you. Is it the lobbyist or is it the is it the people who put you there? And that's the way I approach everything. And and and, and I wish, I wish more politicians, because I, I don't like politics. If you talk to my members, they'll tell you I, I say that all the time, even though you know I'm an elected official and I do understand politics has its place, but I think once people start getting, you know, uh, you know, they, their eyes get big with the money, the the prestige, the titles, the this, the that, they forget about the people, and you just can't forget about the people. You're gonna have to make some hard decisions, and it, it may be a lot harder if you don't take the money from this group, or if you don't want to do, you know, get the endorsement from this group, or whatever the case may be. But you just can never forget about the people who put you there. You know, that's just my 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 view of it. Let me ask you another question, a follow-up question. How do you respond to people who say things that things like, oh, unions have never been the friends of black folk, unions are racist, black folk have never had any power in the unions, they work against our interests, or or, or Things like working class issues are white man's issues. They have nothing to do with black folk. How do you respond to statements like that from people that you hear oftentimes, even within the political political party that you may be a member of? Well, race race is an issue in, in the unions. They are. Um, we, we just throw it out there. It is an issue. When it comes to especially leadership, you can tell that there's a disconnect between minorities and leadership. The leadership is predominantly white, middle-aged white male. Right now, if you look at our Teamsters um, GEB, the board, the IBT International Executive Board, 
I believe it's 26, 28 positions. Two women, three African-Americans, and I believe one Latino. The rest, all white men. But when you look at the makeup of the, the union itself, predominantly about 60, probably 66%, close to 7%, they look like us, right? So, you know, so when you hear statements like that, I can uh, I can understand that sentiment, but I also understand and and know that we can change that, but we all have to work together. When when a uh, a person of color makes it in the leadership, we can't tear them down. We got to build them up. We got to help them out because and, and and no offense to our white brothers and sisters, no offense to them. But they don't understand our struggles. They're just not. The, the leadership should be a, a direct reflection of its members. You're not going to move forward in, in any way progressively if that doesn't happen. If the leaders don't identify with the workers and the workers cannot identify with the leaders, you're going to get stagnation. You're not going to get any engagement. You're not going to get any participation. And then we're going to have this big divide. So I can agree with some of that, what the, what, you know, what you just said, because I felt that way and I experienced it in my, you know, on my way up to this position. Even now, when you go to our meetings, our joint council meetings, our conference meetings, there's nobody on these boards that look like me. So they, so when we, when we talk, there's a cultural divide, there's an engagement divide because they don't understand the, the needs of our people, voter suppression, you mm -hmm. know, crime. I mean, Philadelphia and uh, and you guys in New York City, right? Mm -hmm. Well, I One's am in New York. I'm actually in Mexico, but I'm oh, from okay. Mexico. All right. So here in Philly, man, it's a war zone right now, right? Mm -hmm. So when one of our one of our uh, our members, well, excuse me, one of our principal officers, who's also a black woman, Doctor Cooper, mm -hmm. she had a um, rally at her local union. She is the 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 prince. She's the head lady, the principal officer of the principals union here, local five hundred two. She had a gun rally at her local because there have been some violence at the schools here. Mm -hmm. Guess how many um, of our officers came to that rally? How many? Just me. The rest really? of our white our, our, our white officers, mm -hmm. they're not there. And again, nothing against them, but they don't understand. Their members don't live in these areas. Mm -hmm. Like I said, 70% of my members look like us. They live in these areas, these high crime urban areas, right? Drugs, crime, they dodging bullets, getting to work, dodge, dodging bullets, coming home. They don't understand that. So when we talk about that in our spaces, they don't, they don't want to hear that. All they want to do is go you know, sit at the table, Tell us what to do. Boom, 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 boom. But look, look, okay. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I want to. I want to ask a question about that because that that brings up to me a, a real interesting point. And should we bring in our other surprise guest of the evening, MT? Um. Yes, Richard wait? Hooker. No, let's do it. This is your life. Uh, we have a surprise <laughs> cameo guest star appearance from uh, someone who can vouch for you and let us know just how dope you are. Let's bring him in. His name Whoa. is Paul. Oh, what's up, man? 
the the best teacher on this side and the other side of, of the Mississippi. What's going on with you? I actually, I mostly came on to talk about the Vikings losing to the Cowboys like oh, that. Here we go. Ah, here we go. <laughs> man. Damn. I got a Finkelstein level of hate right there. Man, that's ugly. That's, that's ugly. You you kicking somebody on their way down. On the one hand, I wanted the Cowboys to lose, but on the other hand, I was like, I could rub it in Richard's face and win. So, uh, okay. Is Hooker, see- is Hooker a Vikings fan? Yeah, I'm, I'm a Viking and a Bengal fan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How did that happen? So real quick, I'll tell you because this this is actually the, the 38th and of this week, this Thanksgiving, this Thursday, will be the 38th anniversary of my mother passing away. Um, so my mother, she passed away from lupus when I was five years old on Thanksgiving, and so Ooh. you guys know that lupus, the color, is purple. And so ever since I was a little kid, I just started liking the Vikings because they were purple. And then I just, uh, you know, just kept liking them because of that. Okay. Well, that was rough. Yeah. Sunday was rough. Oh, yeah. Oh, this, yeah. It was this, bad. This for, this for the Vikings. Woo! I want to ask a serious question. And if you stay for the champagne room, we can have a deep dive discussion into the failures of the Vikings and why Paul Prescott will be extremely upset when Philly loses in the NFC Championship game. But we'll save that. We'll save that conversation. But a serious conversation is about violence in black communities. Yeah. Because that's that's an interesting thing that you bring up, that people are dealing with legitimate violence that is going to affect your workday, especially talk about people working in places like UPS in the airport where you're working crazy shifts where you're leaving the house in prime time, bullet fly time, right? Yeah. Midnight, yeah. 1 a.m., 3 a.m., coming home at prime time, bullet fly time. Um, and we're also talking about it in an era where we are more cognizant of overzealous law enforcement. And the way they try to clamp down on us in these areas for, you know, BS stops, et cetera, et cetera. How do you have that conversation with these people that are kind of probably watching it from afar? So they're either watching it from the standpoint of um, damn shame what they did to those colored people to fund the police. Or they're watching it from a, you know, damn shame what those people do to each other. They need more police. How do you have this kind of nuanced conversation with with people that are so absent from the real life experience of people living in that area? I you, I hate to say this, but you almost have to force them to because, you know, they have to deal with it because especially in, in, in my line of work, you know, I had a member. Lost his son. His son got shot twenty eight times. Ooh. You know, you know. I, you you have to be there and you have to want to have these conversations. Because watch this: you're getting you're getting your per capita, you're getting your dues from these people, mm-hmm. right? From the members who's losing their lives and losing their loved ones. You're getting your you're getting the dues from them. Why not have a conversation about what goes on in their community and their day to day life? I heard the um and, and forgive me, I forgot the sister name. She is the um the president of the um Chicago Teachers Union up in Chicago. And she said something during a rally. She said, you know, a union 
is is not a non the union's job is not nine to five. It's twenty four seven. Our members they work all day long. You know, like you just said. You know, you know our, our members they work all types of shifts all throughout the day. And when they get off of work, they're dodging bullets. When they go to work, they're dodging bullets. I had a member tell me not long ago that he feels safer um, at work than he does in his own home. And UPS is not a safe place to work. <laughs> you know? What, what, what does that tell you? But these are the conversations that we need to have with our upper echelon of leadership so they can understand these issues that go on in their members' lives because you get their money every week. You get their money every week. You should want to know what goes on in their lives outside of work because that's how you build relationship. That's how you build that identification. That's how you get that engagement. But, you know, you have to force, um, you know, the leaders to talk. I even, and I give you this before, you know, before somebody jumps in. So when George Floyd, um, when he got murdered, Right. When he got murdered, let's be honest, he got murdered on, you know, on, and we all saw it. Right. This was when COVID was at his at his peak. And I, man, I struggled. I didn't know what to say. I didn't know what to do because I'm watching a brother get get killed on TV by a cop. And I wanted to say something so bad. And this is I was new to the job. I didn't know really. No, but I wanted to say something because. You know, my members wanted me to say something, but I had to be respectful for our white brothers and sisters, too, because I because we have a lot had a lot of things going on because our drivers are working six days a week, 60 hours a week. And, you know, I actually had one driver call me, white driver said, you know, he was surrounded by some looters and he said, Hooker, you got to do something. And what do you do as a black principal officer? who is a black man who sees a cop kill his brother, but then you got a driver who, a white driver who calls you and tells you his, his truck is being surrounded by looters. What do you say? What do you do? Because you have to be considerate for everybody. I'm hurt, I'm mad, I'm upset, but then I got a member who's also trying to get home to his family, but his truck is being surrounded by people of color. He's a white driver. What do you do? What do you say? Right. And so that was a struggle. And that was always been a struggle for me because, you know, our issues, they're magnified and, and I still struggle with, it. I'm struggling with it right now. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's heavy. I mean, it, it reminds me of Reginald Denny. If you remember the LA riots, he was the yeah. truck driver that got taken out of his truck and, uh, and bashed up paul you are in the philadelphia area you like cheesesteaks and the eagles and ben simmons and all that other stuff so i like ben simmons wait <laughs> <laughs> wait a minute <laughs> so 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 real talk how do you how do you approach this because it is a tough conversation to have because it sounds like as much as we like to believe that unions are kind of a magical place of anti-racism and, and uh, love, people still have their own political beliefs that they bring to the table. Mm -hmm. So how do you address things like, you know, rising crime? And again, I, I haven't been in Philly since 2019. 
And I I was I loved my time in Philadelphia. It's a big ass Oakland to me. I love it. I love it. I love it. And uh, I'm still trying to get that beef with Paul and Umar uh, squashed. Wow. The beef that you started. <laughs> right. <laughs> but how, like, all jokes aside, how do you have this conversation with coworkers that are very divorced or leadership that is extremely divorced from an extremely frightening problem? As someone who, not in a union environment, but I did work in a similar environment where when I was coming home at three o'clock in the morning after my shift, it was rough out there. <laughs> so I know I know what it's like to come home in that environment. How do you have that conversation with, with uh, oblivious leadership? Um, I mean, I don't know if I'm, I'm the person to ask. I mean, I can't speak about this from the standpoint of being in union leaders, I'm not, or, you know, previously, you know, as a teacher, I think it's kind of a different workforce and different kind of leadership. Um, so I, I, don't know. I mean, I think there is one natural entry point being in a unionist. I think you can talk to people. I mean, I think members, even members who are upset about the violence, I think they have something about like, like if everyone had the opportunity of a union job, we could probably imagine that there would be less of, of this kind of violence. And the, you know, during my um, campaign, when this would come up a lot, I found like that really was the thing that resonated the most was talking to people about, you know, actually good jobs being available to everyone as a way to, you know, it, it's really not going to get addressed until that issue is, is, um, you know, really taken care of. But yeah, I mean, in terms of speaking to a leadership about it, I don't know. I mean, I think this is where it comes down to. This is why, where members need, really need to be organized in a way that they can make their voices heard to leadership. And this is, I mean, Richard, before he was in leadership, you know, this was kind of the struggle he was involved in was, you know, organizing members, making themselves heard. And, and if you reach a point where you feel like there needs to be new leadership, you know, putting a slate together and running, if you think you can, you know, represent members better. But um, I mean, I think it also just speaks to like it, when we're talking about unions, we're not just talking about what the leadership is like on its own or, or even just electing new leadership. I mean, we, I don't know, I, I wasn't able to listen before him, but you know, there's new leadership in the Teamsters. That's cool and everything, but that won't mean anything if members are not involved and organized. Um, so I think it kind of just speaks to that. I don't know. That was kind of a non-answer, but you know, I can we all admit that it's a, it's a tough question? I always bring it, it right. mm -hmm. when when I when I bring up this question, uh, and I know you and you and Richard are a little younger, but uh, the movie Colors that came out in 1988. There's a great scene in that. You know, another movie steeped in underclass ideology, but uh, there's a great scene in that movie where the black people in the community are yelling at law enforcement about not having enough law enforcement. And while they're still yelling at law enforcement about, hey, y'all don't come and we call, da, 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 they're also saying, but y'all him up our kids and our kids aren't the problem. Hmm. Kind of speaking to that whole, you're not coming when we call you, we need more cops on the street because these cats are shooting, but also can you please stop harassing those of us that aren't the problem? And I think that's where this conversation gets extremely complicated because as we have to deal with rising crime, 
we would love to all have a magic wand and say, you cats get better jobs. <laughs> UPS right. is hiring for everybody. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? We would love to, to, to wave that magic wand, but it just, it isn't that simple. And we want to be able to feel safe in our neighborhoods where sometimes we're homeowners, we're paying too much rent. <laughs> we got car notes and tired of people breaking into the car just to bust out the window and not steal nothing. So, you, you, you know, it's, it's, to me, it seems like it's a hard conversation to have because it is so complex. Because I'm sure if you asked everybody that's mad, well, do you want more cops? Maybe the first answer is yeah. But everybody knows more cops comes with sometimes more cop problems, which is, you know, him and us up, him and up our kids, um, you know, making us late for work because they want to, you know, pick on us because we don't have warrants for real crimes. Mm-hmm. Um, Pascal, do you have something you'd like to add to this as well? No, I mean, it's a complicated it's a complicated question, brother. I don't have an immediate answer for that at all, particularly when you're dealing from how do you manage people who are making their livings in these environments yeah. and how they're supposed to get around those, those questions. And I'm really interested in how, how Richard has dealt with those problems in the past and his expertise in dealing with these kinds of issues with his workers in Philadelphia who have suffered and been victims of violent crimes, particularly like when you deal with deaths, homicide, things of that nature. How do you make, I, I mean, to sound, not to sound trite, but how do you make your workspace a safe, a safe space for your, for your people in that kind of environment? Well, when one of our members goes to this, I'm, I'm always available. You know, we, 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 we talk to the family, we help them as, as, as well as we can. Um, dealing with UPS and trying to make sure that our members are safe when they're in these environments, that's that's the problem right there because all UPS thinks about is getting the package off the truck, getting the delivered. They don't care if you're dodging bullets. Listen, we had drivers shot at bullet mm. holes in the windows. Mm. Then the company, the company wants to tell the driver that they still have to continue to work. The driver is no condition to work. He doesn't know if 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 the guy, the person is going to come back and try to finish the job. They don't know. But UPS doesn't care. And so we, as a union, we constantly have to fight them when these things happen. And our members appreciate that. Mm-hmm. You know, when one of these happen, I talk to the member, make sure they're okay. If they need anything, listen, we got their back. If the company tries to discipline you because you don't feel ready, your nerves are not ready, because what you don't want to happen is to go back out there and you're still fearful of, you know, what could happen out there on the street and then you have an accident and then now you lose your job. But all UPS had to do is do the right thing. Hey, listen, we'll get somebody else out there. We'll get somebody to follow you, whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the times, man, it's, it's fighting with the company to create these safe spaces for our members. That's really a, a big, a big, big fight right there. Mm-hmm. And those are safe asking. and clean spaces too, right? Yeah. <laughs> Because yeah, we had a, I mean, yeah, we had a fight. I mean, listen, you would think that a company as profitable, as well known as UPS would always, always do the right thing. 
you got to fight them for everything. When COVID happened, man, we had to go on TV. We had to go to ABC. We had to go on the news. And this is the thing. We, we, we reached out to them. We showed them the pictures. We showed them the videos. We talked to them. I said, hey, man, you guys got to do something. We filed the grievances. But at a certain point, I, I, I got a responsibility to my members above all. So if UPS is not going to do the right thing, then I'm going to do whatever it takes. Either I got to embarrass them, we got to fight them, take file charges against them. We're going to do whatever it takes to make sure our members are protected, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And that's what we did with COVID. You want to add something? I was going to add, yeah, that um, I think during time, there's also a good opportunity to get some of these safety issues on the table and bargaining um, and, and get, get them in writing. And I actually just read an article before you know coming on this show, um, Temple Hospital in North Philadelphia. Those nurses just won a new contract. And part of the many issues they were dealing with was, I mean, getting attacked violently by patients and also in the parking lot, like cars getting broken into, you know, uh, things like that. And I honestly, I forget the specifics, but part of what they want in their contract was like even just more security in the hospital parking lot and also more protections from violent patients. So, you know, we don't have to think of bargaining as just being the wages and benefits. I think there's all these kinds of safety things we can institute into the the contract. Um, And, you know, I think it's worth thinking about, and I'm sure we will be going forward about what that would look like at UPS, like not just safety, not just health and safety, like workplace hazards, but like maybe better protocols for what to do if your, you know, truck is shot up, you know, or, or, you know, you're going into an area where there's like an active shooter or something, you know, maybe Mm -hmm. people just haven't thought about that before look like in contract language, but I think all that stuff needs to be on the table and bargaining. I mean, it seems insane that you have to go back to work after something like that happens because it's so traumatizing. I mean, Paul, you're a teacher and I'm sure, you know, thank the Lord you didn't have to uh, deal with a shooter in your school, but I'm sure you've had, you know, moments where you're like, I need to walk out of this class for a second before I kill one of these children. (laughs) Do you? I won't won't say that on the record. (laughs) <laughs> you know, many schools like you know lockdowns, you know, or things like that is pretty common. Is it really? Yeah. Although you know, I'm I'm not teaching currently. I'm I'm in Teamster World now. You got you got out of there because you you was tired of being like Florida Evans every day at school. Damn, damn, damn. Mm, mm, mm. <laughs> not quite. Um, not quite. <laughs> You can't picture Paul uh, like Florida Evans, uh, MT. Oh my God, no. <laughs> just mad at Paul this. as Florida Evans is you, like. You picture him more like James with a hole in his natural. <laughs> cool, well, yeah, I mean, cool, a cool sack and, haircut. Um, <laughs> Don't let Paul get the pool cue. Why is that ripping on me right now? <laughs> Jason, Paul, Jason sets you up all the time when you come on. I don't know. I'm know. quiet. I'm like, Yo, I don't know man. why I keep coming back. I, I got much love for Pyro Paul. Pyro Paul. Wow. I'm repping his set. 
He's rubbing he his back. You're setting me up with beef with Umar. And <laughs> I want to talk about safety. He's, I'm, you know what? I need to, I need to, I'm, all right. I'm sorry, Paul. I'll take that Umar heat. Come, Umar. We coming for you, nigga. Oh, easy. Easy. He doesn't want that. All right. I like, I like how he can do this all the way in Mexico. He can do this and he's safe. Right, and then I yeah. gotta do with this. <laughs> I'd be, be nice. so mad if Umar knocked on Paul's door, <laughs> asking Paul if he overstands. Stop! 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 <laughs> Jesus, we did like Turn fifteen out. episodes about Kyrie and and Black History Lights. <laughs> 15. We got enough to worry about in the East Coast. I'm I'm going to New York soon. Mm -hmm. Is there black Israelites in Philly? Oh, yeah. Yep. Every major city. (laughs) Where are you now, Richard? I'm in Mayfair. I live in Mayfair, a section of the city. That's somebody said I'm trying to make everybody unemployed. That's not true. I want all no. these colored folks on the screen to have good jobs. Except They're the paying jobs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, are you, yeah, are we you got... joining us in the champagne room? Yeah, yeah. About the Vikings mm-hmm. and uh, Rich is like, is there gonna be champagne in the champagne room? <laughs> <laughs> if you brought some, then there definitely will be. <laughs> yeah, we got we gotta do, we gotta do this again, man. When we when we uh really get down and and, and dirty with the contract talks next year. Yeah, like uh, before mm. we go, how are you, how are you feeling about the, the? This is a big contract. Uh, yeah, Paul's been talking about this since late last year. So how do you guys feel? How do you feel right now about this uh, contract talk that's coming up? Next year. Well, I'm 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 cautiously hopeful. Mm-hmm. Hopeful. I, I'll say that. Um I think there's a lot more activity. Um this time around getting more members involved and engaged and letting them know what's going on, which is a good thing. That hasn't happened since I've been a teamster. Mm-hmm. So that's a good thing. Um I just hope that I just hope that the 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 leadership, myself included, will be uh, able to fulfill all of the promises that were made uh, by the upper echelon of the, of, of the teams to leadership. Um, that's my that's my uh, one thing that I'm hoping, and and we're gonna do our part to make sure that we can do that. I, I just hope that our members are ready for a fight, and if we have to strike, I hope that you know our members will honor the strike um, because it's very very important and 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 i and i'm gonna be honest with you this this COVID that we're you know still going through a little bit but i hope every member everybody that watched this if, if you are a ups member and you're watching this I, I want you to remember how you were treated during the height of COVID, the force Six punches, all the overtime, and all, you know how you were treated, right? The company made all this money, no hazard pay, the constant disrespect, the the constant just this degradation, 
And now we have an opportunity to get back everything that we demand and deserve. Um, the company does not make anything without the worker. You can't go to the store right now and pick up something that UPS makes. They don't make anything. They don't manufacture anything. Their sole company is built on our labor. And if we don't stand for something, you're going to give it back to them. They're going to continue to take. They're going to continue to, because they're going to make money. They're going to make money. But we we have an obligation to fight, right? Fight for what we demand and deserve. And, and the only way I can see this happening um, is if we go out on strike. I don't, I'm not saying that we want to, but if we have to, then we need to. We need to. We need to. All right. Well, thank you guys very much for joining us. Uh, we will be going into the bonus patron-only champagne room if you want to be a part of that. Patreon.com slash Bitter Lake Presents. If you're listening to the show later, watching the show later, what didn't we cover? What didn't we address? Let us know in the comments. Tell us off. Tell us who you think would win in the Umar versus Paul contest. Because I think he's all talk. This mm. one type of, just always want to look mad, but when it really comes down to it, he don't want that smoke. <laughs> I said it. If he wants to smoke, he can come to Mexico. I'm in Rosarito, nigga. <laughs> you think he's coming? He ain't coming. No. You know why? He don't want it. Paul gonna rush his in. Probably once every two months, I just randomly think about, oh shit, like all this stuff about Umar is up on the internet. And anyway, <laughs> find it, I can just get jumped at it. And then I forget about it. And then two weeks, two months later, I'm like, oh shit, that, that stuff's still there. They're, they're afraid to mess with you, Paul, because you don't watch the episodes where I lie and say that you are Max Julian's illegitimate son. <laughs> I'll give everybody that a was second. A lie? <laughs> I'll give everyone a second to Google who Max Julian is. And Pascal has forgotten who Max Julian is. I know the Mac. What you talking about, <laughs> Shade trade, nigga. You ain't no pimp. So that alone, Party. Paul, that alone, you have such a free pass. That alone. Right. I feel so safe now. You should. (laughs) And your walk should change a little bit too. You should fucking. (laughs) (laughs) What do people need? I already walk like that. (laughs) You've only seen me. All over West Philly, just walking like Sherman Hemsley. <laughs> Richard's like, I can't believe serious conversation between this bullshit. Yeah, I should have warned you, Rich. I'm sorry. Yeah. No, no, it's all good, man. This ain't the Jackman show. This is- no, 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 no. No, it's not. No, it's not. Shout out to Kale. Oh, yeah. Fool. Well, please join us with the champagne room. More of this silly stuff, but more serious conversations as well. Let's talk more about Philly. Let's talk more about organized labor. Let's talk about organized labor and black folks. 
We got one of the best guys on to talk about that, Paul Prescott. Wait, hold on. Hold on. Paul can come if Richard says it's okay. Because <laughs> what we don't need is the light-skinned man coming in and taking things over from the dark-skinned black man. Ooh, That's not what we need right we now. Ooh. We don't need that kind say, of domination in the community. I was invited. Let me just <laughs> but Richard, he's my principal officer. So yeah, you know, whatever. Hey, I'm cool with it. I'm cool. I'm cool. All right. Can we just call Paul from now on? It's no more Labor Paul or Pyru Paul. It's Paul Prescott, mm. Max Julian of Organized Labor. Of Organized Labor. <laughs> I'm going to veto that one. <laughs> Maybe that was not going to work. All right. MT, we yep. are out.